0: Hi everyone, God, you're very excitable. Uh, And not on your phones. This is great. Um, Very warm welcome uh, to the LSE and for our event tonight, which is uh, cheeringly called Are We Heading to a Digital Dystopia? Uh, This is obviously part of the uh, LSE's festival, uh, New World Disorders, uh, which is continuing, I think, until Saturday. Uh, part of a whole series of activities at the LSE uh, this year looking at how uh, the social sciences can tackle uh, global issues. Um, My name is Charlie Beckett. I'm a professor in the Department of Media and Communications here. Uh, I'm also director of something called POLIS, which is the LSE's journalism uh, think tank. Uh, Thinking of dystopia, uh, I joined the LSE about 12 years ago, I think it was, 14 years ago, and I wrote a lovely book about it was called Supermedia, and it was all about how digital technologies were going to help transform journalism and make it more democratic and participatory. Uh, it was actually the subtitle was actually called Saving Journalism So It Can Save the World. Um, and for somebody who's worked to a journalist for 25 years, that was, you know, charmingly naive, uh, as we as we've seen more recently to the extent that my, my last project here was chairing something called the LSE Truth, Trust and Technology Commission, and we reported in, in November. And it was about the information crisis in particular, you know, the fake news uh, panic, if you like. But more generally, it also explored some of the background uh, to this idea that there's something structurally amiss with our kind of digital media and communication, so if you 're interested in in this topic, look at that but tonight we 've got three fabulous people to uh, look at this this issue from uh, very differing perspectives. next to me, very warm welcome to Sam Byers. Uh, Sam uh, is the author of something called uh, a book called Idiopathy, uh, and more recently a wonderful book called Uh, Perfidious Albion, uh, which is a a kind of black mirror um, saga about uh, contemporary Britain, very much related to this idea of a kind of, what's this, Orwellian, that's not quite the right word, but um, this idea that uh, the the digital is taking over our lives and not necessarily in, in great ways also really pleased my colleague Alison Powell in the middle there who's an assistant professor also in the Department of Media and Communications and Orla Lindsay who's from the Department of Law here at the LSE as well and uh, we are going to kick off though, uh, Sam's going to do a, a reading from uh, from the book, just some other technical bits um, obviously you know yeah, turn off your phones please Um, or at least put them on silent mode. If, however, you wish to be uh, compulsively social, then the hashtag for this
1: uh,
0: is something... Where is the hashtag? The hashtag was called... Oh, sorry, here we are. Uh, The hashtag is New World Disorders or LSE Festival. Not hugely imaginative. Perhaps you could come up with some better uh, hashtags. But Sam, please kick us off with uh, an extract
2: from Perfidious Albion. So I'm just going to read a very short passage. I don't think you need to know very much, just that it's a book about a small town called Edmondsbury, um, which has had the sort of controversial arrival of a tech park on its outskirts. And the central character, Jess, is walking through the town with her partner, Robert. And Jess, who sort of studies these things, is just thinking about the changes that have been wrought on the town um, following the arrival of the tech park. In the post-tech park era, people half-jokingly referred to as Edmondsbury 2.0, change was abundant. Touting for planning permission in a town not yet consenting to their arrival, Green had trumpeted their own efficiency and played up the changes they could affect. Sweeteners had been offered and accepted. New cabling, a town-wide private network... Increased download speeds, heightened security Convenience and modernity had won out over suspicion Now though, discomfort had crept back in The aftermath of some intangible shift was in the air It was something people talked about at odd hours In the early morning after a night of drinking At the end of a particularly reflective meal as the bill was being settled The word uncanny was bandied around a lot Visible change was no longer the issue The unease stemmed from the unseen, from the near invisible yet perfectly measurable changes Edmondsbury's environment had undergone. Keen to invest in schemes that might not have bought any financial return, but which promised to accrue ideological interest, Green had offered to help the town meet its goal of becoming more environmentally sound. The project was heavily publicized, but the details were not. How many people in Edmondsbury were therefore conscious of the fact that the illumination emitted from their once familiar streetlights had shifted ever so slightly along the spectrum. Was anyone aware, as Jess was, that the direction of this shift was, to a fractional but nonetheless important degree, closer to full spectrum daylight, meaning that almost undetectably, anyone out walking after dark was subject to a micro alteration of their circadian state. Even when changes were digital, the effect Jess knew could be physical. Complaints about traffic had increased by almost 200%. Local opinion held that the arrival of the tech park had led to the arrival of more people, which had in turn led to greater congestion on the roads, an assumption that clearly had at least some basis in reality. But plotted on a graph, the increase in internet speeds and the increase in traffic complaints could practically be overlaid onto each other people's collective capacity for patience had decreased in inverse proportion to their expectation of immediacy. As she and Robert walked towards the town centre, Jess considered the way in which all of these individually small and almost unnoticeable changes in experience added up to a seismic shift in consciousness. Around her, perfectly unaware people traversed pools of altered light, their senses tuned to new pitches of speed and immediacy. Perhaps, she thought, their heart rates were infinitesimally accelerated, their pupils micro-dilated, their breathing a quarter of a respiration faster and shallower. Perhaps all these adaptations in what they saw and how they saw it added up to something irreversible, evolutionary. Or perhaps the creeping change responsible for Edmondsbury's collective, semi-conscious unease was nothing more than the digital mimicry of an organic inevitability. Progress was always present. It was only its speed that changed, from faster than light down to glacial, imperceptible to vertigo-inducing. Nothing was ever stable. Nothing was ever at rest. Right.
0: Just- Quick question, Sam. In the book then goes into a most, well, rather complicated um, plot lines about a uh, sort of systematic um, malign uh, environment. When you, when you were writing it, was it? What was the motivation? Was it that you felt there was something rotten uh, about you know British politics and British commerce and all that? Or how critical was it for you that the technology itself was actually making a profound difference to individuals and that community that you describe?
2: And um, My first motivation was, was actually, I, I don't know if anyone remembers this, but four or five years ago there was a slightly strange discussion happening in literary fiction about whether or not you could include emails and text messages and right. mobile phones and things in a novel or whether that sort of dated the novel, in inverted commas. And um, very respectable people were, I think, advising writing students. And you know, they're very worried about how novels would read in 50 years' time if you included that technology. And at the same time, lots of writers were writing as if the Internet was something they had to shut out completely in order to get any writing done. So, you know, Jonathan Franson, like, I think, sawed off his Ethernet cable and then superglued it <laughs> in so that he could, like, never have the internet under any circumstances. Yeah. And it seemed to me that there was room for a novel that sort of turned the tap the other way, and I wanted to see if, instead of just sort of shutting the internet out or pretending like it didn't exist, if, creatively, it would be more interesting to let all of that stuff into my writing process. Um, And then I think as I started doing that, it seemed to me that the novel as a form is actually quite well placed to consider not so much the, the granular detail of technology or new technology or predict what new technology might be emerging, although it can do that. I think there's something about the novel that makes it well placed to try and capture the emotional experience mm. of what these changes have wrought on us, so what that feels like on a day-to-day basis. Um, and so that became more really what I wanted to write about, I think. Yeah.
0: And you know, there's some fantastic stories about how people's lives are literally turned upside down and often uh, wrecked. But, uh, and obviously it's quite dramatic. We're not all going to experience what happens in that. But do you, do you feel this is a sort of, you know, a warning to history? That, um, do you think this is something that we as individuals are, are facing, or do you think it's more of a kind of social problem?
2: Well, I think, I think it's both. Um, I mean, I feel like the, the book does then start to open out into the implications of, you know, data harvesting, for example, and what that might mean. A larger political scale, and we've, we've seen that already with Cambridge Analytica, yeah. Facebook in the American elections, etc. etc. But I think we do also need to be conscious of very individual, personal changes in our lives. It may not be like the kind of scandal that affects the characters in the book, but all of us are managing things on a much you know, a hugely changed time frame.
0: Yeah.
2: and um, you know, we have to think about our own personal capacity for managing those things, as well as just looking at it in a in a structural yeah. way.
0: Obviously, I can handle it. The fact the phone is only inches away from my hand is it's, it's a completely relevant. Alison, um, how how do people um, respond?
3: So I want to make some comments that were inspired by this passage that Sam read. And I want to talk a little about time, space, and subjectivity. Um, Because it seems like even that very short passage gives a sense, I think, of the way that you are exploring the shifts in sort of experiences of time and experiences of space and of subjectivity. And my work is uh, sort of around the ethics of technology. And one of the things that I just finished working on was a long book about the smart city, which is, I think, also what this novel is about, is a kind of the promise of the smart city. And one of the things I found in my work is that this promise is actually um, something that does quite a lot of work itself. It's the promise. Of the optimal experience, it's the promise of the gently changed uh, street lighting, and I love that you use that example um, because, along with you know making the traffic run faster, it's one of the few um, really good existing examples of complete smart city um, planning. Um, but what I think is in in your passage, and also came up quite a lot in my work, is this idea of the idea of what like what can be made optimal. So what is it that can be bettered, and kind of what it, and how many of these visions are tied up with a promise of progress and a promise of things always somehow inevitably becoming better, and we hold on to the promise regardless of the fact that it comes at such cost, um, and I um, and I think that that uh, cost is often um, connected with the how the optimization has to occur. So the optimization, if you're going to base it on data, is going to be about what can be measured, what can be described numerically or in streams of digital data, and what can be predicted based on the analysis of streams of digital data. And then when you think about the kind of whole range of your life versus how many of the things in your life have those capacities that can be measured and then optimized in this particular way. Like, life is huge, and the, the sort of range of things that can be optimized is actually quite narrow. But this promise is that it's all gonna come into this sort of system, you know, that's gonna make everything better. And the consequences that you get this gentle nudging, which is based on ideas about behavioral economics and behavior change, and that you also get this kind of like expansion of data-based economies and markets that sort of depend on this constant datafication. And then that builds up into, you know, um, a kind of entire uh, economy built around extracting information from people and extracting information in really particular forms, like in this, di- in this sort of digital data form, and then building an economy on top of that. And maybe none of us really wanted to end up in a world where very important parts of our personal lives are transformed into digital traces that are traded and generating value for someone else, And somehow we ended up in this situation because of this alluring promise of, like, the optimization of so much of life. And I spent most of my day at a large tech company today. And I can tell you that this promise is alive and well and working on the next iteration, the next and like more, perf- more perfect embedding of you know, predictive technology in ways that are intended by well-intentioned, intelligent people to improve our lives. And as a social scientist and a critical person, I sit in the room and I keep saying, but what have you not thought about? But what are the other consequences? And what about the things that lie outside your frame? And it's my role that I've chosen. Uh, It also somehow seems endless. Um, But I think those are the questions that we are all asking ourselves. And maybe um, the questions that Sam is helping us to think about um, in in, in the context that he investigates. And maybe the questions that should sort of take us to a place beyond this alluring promise of progress.
0: Just quickly, Alison. Just come back on. The, 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 we're talking about sort of disorders and dystopia. Um, I don't know how comfortable you are with that word, dystopia. But in a way, what you describe. You know, what's wrong with that? What What What's wrong with that? What is troubling about it? Definitely, there's a sort of systematic shift. But why? You know, this is what you know, talked about the promise. And the, the promise has delivered marvelous things. You know, search sociability shopping.
3: Sure. Sure, um. sure, and and, uh, and, and, they, and I think uh, search, sociability, and shopping are really excellent examples of things that like in a really narrow way you can optimize, but what can you not optimize for, right. right, and what gets left out, and what has to get squished into that sort of tiny box and made to work as if it was search or shopping, and when we think about sort of data-based economies and how uncomfortable we might feel about kind of constant surveillance, which is presumably also the direction that your um, sort of smart town goes, the pervasive surveillance is somehow required because it optimizes for safety, for example, because it optimizes for seeing more things, generating more dangerous data streams from the records of people walking down the street that previously weren't recorded in this kind of form. You know, then it optimizes for preventing um, crime, or preempting crime, uh, which creates a different kind of social setting right so so these are this is a sort of good intention that leads to a really uncomfortable consequence and i and I think the reason I might not sort of stake a claim and say this is a dystopia is that it really depends for whom right. this is a dystopia. Right? We currently live in a dystopia if you are a person who is homeless uh, does not have a steady income, um, needs to apply for universal credit, um, is a migrant uh, who is trying to cross a border, um, or, you know, is a person with uh, with a sort of, like, unsteady... Um, uh, Uh, unsteady health condition, right? So at any moment in history, everyone is living potentially in some kind of dystopia. So the question about, you know, are we headed for a dystopia? Well, that sort of depends for who, because for some we've already arrived.
0: Yeah. Orla, um, picking up on that, I wonder if you could sort of talk about what is different, because... You know media historians for example would say well this is a cyclical thing you know that when you know when, when the printing press was in, invented uh, the, you know people spoke how appalling this was going to be when television came along you know we were told certainly my mum told me it was going to make me very stupid if I watched too much of it um, she may have been right um, uh, so, and there's this sort of cycle of fear and then uh, or excitement and then fear around these new technologies Uh, We're talking about disorder here, systematics. What's different, in your view, about these set of circumstances?
4: Well, two things, really. I think if I I picked up from the the points Alison just made about, you know, for whom is this a dystopia? I think one of the things that's distinct here and that comes across even in the the passage Sam just read is that this is very much a kind of a slow-burn process. This isn't a big mm. kind of rupture. A lot of the changes that we're talking about here are almost imperceptible. So even if you think of an optimization um, technology like a mapping service, a digital mapping service, that obviously helps us to get from point A to be in a city, but in the context of that, the usage of that mapping service, you're not thinking about externalities like driving down the small roads um, and the increased traffic on those roads and the environmental implications of that. So I think um, one distinct thing here is just the extent to which these changes are tangible to us. Uh, In my research, I've focused on um, something a bit different. So I've looked at, um, I guess, the limits of individual control over data, and that I think is particularly pervasive in in smart cities and in the context of uh, ubiquitous computing and omnipresent sensors, and then what the legal system is doing um, to tackle that um, challenge to individual control over data. And so here I think um, in the digital context, one thing that is distinct is that we see a concentration of data in the hands of very few actors And that data, um, if we are committed to the idea that data is going to be one of the, the necessary resources for future innovation and decision making, including lots of decision making like Alison has mentioned, predictive policing and other things, then for me one of the challenges here is about the aggregation of that data in the hands of a few actors, and also the privatization of that data. And in many ways I think the legal framework is still kind of catching up with that, so there are lots of legal measures that haven't been very effective in tackling that kind of private control over personal data. So up until now, if you look at the data protection framework, it's placed, in my opinion, way too much um, onus on the individual to exercise their own rights and hasn't introduced enough kind of systemic or systematic measures to help people and to support people exercise their own rights. That might, I'm slightly more optimistic here about the changes brought about by GDPR because of course the, the big fines got a lot of attention but there are also really positive measures like the ability to mandate a civil society organisation to go and make a complaint on your behalf and that kind of collective action might kind of act as a, as a counterbalance to this data power. But equally I think if you look at other areas of law they're kind of pulling in the opposite direction. So through a relatively um, light-touch merger and acquisition regime. We've allowed Google and Facebook to hoover up all of the the, um, up-and-coming competitors that are, in fact, data-driven businesses. And that has meant that, unlike media of old or the oil companies or whatever, you've got the presence of these companies across all areas of life, ranging from Google Nest in your home to Google Search on your... um, on your, on your computer or whatever that is to the Android operating system on your mobile phone to partnerships between Google and local NHS trusts in the UK. And so once you start to aggregate that data, you get a far more um, pervasive and invasive picture of what's happening in, in individuals' lives that, that no government has ever really had before. And so that's, I guess, one thing I would be concerned about and I think a, a theme that emerges from the book as well.
0: Yeah. And and obviously it's still quite early days. I mean, we, we as I said, we did we, we did this Truth, Trust, and Technology Commission report, which basically said something must be done. It's very complicated, and we have to sort of be quite tentative about what we do. How how powerless do you feel? Because I think as individuals, we feel a bit swamped by it all. We don't look at the terms and conditions before we accept them. Um, we are disturbed by the, 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 as you say, the sort of subtle unknown effects. For example, about our children going online and so on. Uh, how, do you, what, how do you see the sort of appetite amongst, I don't know, lawyers but also policymakers and politicians to even understand this, and then act upon it?
4: Yeah, I, I, I do. I'm again quite optimistic there. I do feel like something has changed over the past um, year or so, insofar so far as this has really caught the attention of policymakers. Um, The pushback is always, well, we as individuals have not stopped using these services. But I think it's far too simplistic to simply say that. Well, people people are okay with this because they continue to use Facebook. Well, realistically, you have to see that Facebook Mm. is something that is, um, for instance, very... Well, very widely used in professional circles, for personal circles, people have their networks there, so I think, again, this goes to the point that it's, it's too much to push this back on individuals alone. But in terms of the, the types of changes that you might see, well, we've seen um, the European Data Protection Agencies, for instance, are now able to club together to have a form of pan-European regulator, which will be able to take um, actions against companies operating across borders, something which we didn't have before, this all fell on the regulator in the, in the country where those, those companies had their main establishment. And this led to a lot of fragmentation, but also weakened the power of the data mm. protection authorities. So things like that, I think, could be useful. You're also seeing from competition authorities, so the German Competition Authority has, for instance, recently taken um, an enforcement action against Facebook on the basis that it is um, collecting data from individuals, not just when they use the Facebook site, but when they use any web page that has the Facebook plug-in embedded. And that's the type of thing that, first of all, users aren't likely to realize, and secondly, even if they do, they might not have the technical capability to turn off that, those functions, or realistically, the choice to be able to do so. So when you see those regulators step in and actually take enforcement action, I think this is the first time we're seeing that happen across the board, um, and in a more systematic way, which I yeah. think is promising.
0: Sam, she's, she's used the dreaded optimism word, you know, it's um, like rather cheery. I wondered how you felt, of, I mean, in the book, it, the, how much the technology really scares you or whether it's a metaphor for, I mean, as Alison mentioned, you know, there are real-world problems that people have. Are we, in a sense, getting distracted by the, the black mirror, you know, Shenanigans of the, you know, the, the the technology.
2: Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm I'm certainly not a complete digital skeptic. You know, I think we can we can point to many exciting things that have happened as a result of the new technologies that we have. I think there are far more opportunities for um, political organisation, for example, activism. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't think it's a kind of um, I, I don't feel strictly dystopian about it, but I suppose another way of thinking about it, just to pick up on what, what you were saying, Alison, um, in, in terms of who who is a dystopia for, yeah. another question might be, like, who gets the good technology, I think? And, you know, you were talking about people who are maybe on universal credit or... So I think it's very easy to almost buy into what you were talking about, about like the, this promise and this allure of um, hyper-advanced technology, stuff that's going to do stuff so quickly, everything's going to be so convenient. But equally, I think we've seen a rise in what you might call like digital barriers or digital right. gatekeeping. And so you know, if you want to go to your local social services, for example, and ask for an occupational therapy assessment, that used to be really easy. You just phoned their number. Now you're probably going to be told to fill out an 11-page web form circa 2003 that like doesn't work, <laughs> on possibly on a computer you don't even have yeah. to begin with. And if you want to claim universal credit, you're going to be directed to your online portal, which probably doesn't work very well on your mobile phone, and maybe you don't have any data. And even you know, if you're complying with the terms of your benefits and you're going to job interviews, some of those interviews are going to be digital interviews or automated Mm -hmm. interviews. So I feel like it's very easy for us to kind of maybe get wrapped up in the, you know, the the bigger kind of structural questions and also in this idea of some of these digital technologies as being really amazing, um, you know, futuristic things. But I think we're also seeing what you might call like the NAF end of technology, and I think you 're right, I think that feels very much like a dystopia to people who are trying to use it to achieve something that ten years ago would have been very simple yeah.
3: I mean this is also a question about system design, right so like you have a, a whole system let 's say the system you were describing, like you want to get like you want to register for a gp um, let 's say because you know many, many people have to do that so There is a system that is bureaucratic and people based that you can use. There's also a system that is, you know, seamless digital and cuts cost that you can use. The question is like, who benefits and who's, and, and, and who's You know, who benefits from the lessened cost of the digital system? So it could be that the NHS benefits from the lessened cost of the digital system. But it could be that the actual, like, (laughs) organizational cost is being borne by many more people who have fewer personal resources, right? So that's a form of structural inequality, which is, like, reducing cost, Reducing complexity for some actors, but increasing cost and increasing complexity for other actors. So I think that you know, these technologies are never truly neutral, right? They have a kind of the capacity to to act and to transform things in the world. Um, and with like really interesting, you know, cutting edge um, automated decision making systems, for example, like. As these are developed, it's very important to think about who is likely to benefit from them, um, whose costs will be reduced. Uh, those of us in this room who you know, have mobile phones can order food to be delivered literally anywhere we are. That is a lowered cost for us But it might be those, uh, uh, might have a higher cost for someone else who now has an unstable work situation because they are an Uber Eats bike driver and, you know, they don't have consistent employment and they are classed as an independent contractor which means that if they are sick they don't get sick pay so these are also things that are not only to do with technology they're really to do with the design of systems and the application of technologies to you know um, existing social relations
0: Yeah. And how, I'm going to do, go to you in a second uh, if you've got questions or comments for you to chip in this is, I don't know if I'm allowed to ask this but you've both got young kids and I wondered how much you think this is a generational shift how different do you think, are we on the cusp? I mean, the Internet's been around for a bit. Social's been around for a bit already. Um, but how much of a, a, a sort of, you know, what's the step change, generational change we're witnessing? Or is this more evolutionary? How, how, have we overbought into the idea that everything's going to be disrupted and profoundly changed?
4: I got the easy question. (laughs) Yeah, On
0: a scale of 1 to (laughs) 10.
4: Well, I I mean, the future is still there for for the taking in many senses. Um, Insofar as I think when I hear uh, technologists describe their vision for the future, that might not necessarily be something I would... Buy into, for instance, you know, implants in order to have smart technologies uh, to decide what flavour tea I'm going to drink. Is that necessary? And I think that this comes back to the point Alison was just making, which is, I think, in the rollout and the deployment of these technologies, there needs to be some consideration of who who the beneficiaries will be and and what the added value of the technologies are. Hmm. So I guess in the research I've been doing recently, I've been looking at. Um, the rollout of predictive policing technologies in the UK, which are being used in, in two different ways. One to um, identify kind of systemic risks, so where do you think the next crime hotspot is going to be, and others to, to look at um, more individualised decision-making about whether or not you you think a particular person is more likely to re-offend in the future. And um, the fact of the matter is that if you delve into the legal framework, it gives those who are subject to these decisions... Um, very little legal protection at all. So the moment you have a human in the loop, data protection law effectively ceases to be useful in those circumstances. And I think that the hard edge of all of those profiling um, technologies and predictive technologies are going to be borne by those um, who, have, uh, who have less income, who have less, a, less, a lesser voice in order to kind of contest them. There's been a brilliant report recently by the Data Justice Lab in Cardiff on the rollout of scoring, data-scoring technologies in the UK, and they, they make exactly this point that, um, you know, there's really a lack of systemic inf- information about where and when these are being used, and very few ways to, to challenge them.
2: So. Yeah. Do you think there's, um, like, a kind of moral implication as well to, um, you know, we, we you know, we're talking about things like accessing benefits and things like that, and, it, you know, increasingly, you're talking about, like, predictive policing... And so where we used to have a decision-making that was made by a person that I guess allowed for a lot of grey area and judgment and maybe, like, deep thought about the wider context of what was happening in something, someone's life, um, you know, now if we're pushing some of those quite profound moral questions onto an automated system, I can see, in a way there's a level of reassurance there for mm. us as a society and for the people who use that system to help them make decisions because it's almost removed the burden of, you know, working in a moral grey area. But do you think there's a sort of a wider problem if we, come to, if we come to accept the idea that those are decisions that can be automated and we, we don't need to make for ourselves in a kind of thorny, difficult way?
3: That's a fascinating question. It's something I've been thinking about quite a lot because I've done some projects on understanding and explaining automated decisions, which is usually considered to be a kind of precondition for having them be accountable. Um, but it turns out that actually explaining how an automated decision works doesn't make it accountable um, because you can explain something, but you doesn't mean that you've eliminated the problems or the biases around that. Um, and this is a, an area where the research is, um, research acknowledges that as societies we have biases. When we build decision-making systems that are meant to automate things that we do as society, that as, as a society, those systems tend to embed the biases of the society that built them. In some cases, you can kind of prove that an automated system will have eliminated certain kinds of human bias, but it will have reintroduced different kinds of bias because automated systems are looking for different sorts of patterns. So it is basically impossible to eliminate these sort of the thorny moral responsibility. It just... Using an automated system displaces the kind of moral responsibility to a different part of the decision-making process. It might mean displacing the moral responsibility to examining which kind of training data was used, for example, in a predictive policing mm. system to determine what assumptions are embedded in that data and also potentially analyzing how those, the different aspects of that prediction operate. The really difficult thing is that you can have a straightforward predictive system where you can look at what you put into it and generally be able to describe what that is and how it relates to what's coming out. But there are now systems that are based on sort of neural networks and other forms of machine learning where it's not as clear that what the, the relationship between what comes out and what goes in. So again, this kind of moral decision making has to take place at a different spot because otherwise you will have a bias that, unlike a social bias that we might be able to kind of track back and describe and analyze as a social science, as as social scientists, you may have a bias that is present but inexplicable.
0: Yeah, Mm. yeah. So, any questions out there from people? Quite a few. Sorry, where are the mics? Uh, Sorry, keep your hands up. Hands that I'm going blind. Should you take one there, please? Um, so
3: Dr. Powell mentioned um, the uh, the European kind of union's increased kind of like uh, legislative push
0: uh, and a- as a function of kind of things increasing for consumers. Um, kind of related to that, how much do you think the
3: current kind of commodification, the, the downturn and all this stuff is kind of a direct result of capitalism itself rather than
0: the technology? How much of it is baked into that capitalist system?
2: Quick, easy one. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's almost entirely um, the, the, the result of capitalism more than it's the result of the technology. And I, I, I think it's a very good point because I think... Again, there's almost a risk we become distracted by technology when perhaps, in fact, you know, the, the problem is the business model. Um, and you know, I was thinking, you know, as you were talking about GDPR, for example, there's a fundamental tension, it's, it seems to me, between um, trying to minimise the amount of data we hold on someone, which is, I think, the principle of GDPR, when the business model is to hoover up as much data as you possibly can. And no, I don't think that's about technology. I think that's about money and profit and growth and expansion.
1: Paula?
4: I would completely concur in so far as I think that the current system is, of course, premised on capitalism. But I do think that within the capitalist system, another form of a data-based system is possible. So at the moment, I think we're very close to a data bubble insofar as um, a lot of the, the the actors that you see in the system are collecting such an excess of data um, that is then kind of being used, for instance, for ever uh, ever-increasingly personalised targeting, whether that is commercial targeting or political targeting. Whereas I think if you paired things back a little bit, you could, you could actually have a functioning internet without um, so much data collection by doing something really simple like instead of having um, online behavioural advertising, having contextual advertising. So when you enter a search term into Google search engine like bicycles in London, you get um, advertising that's relative to that. But at the moment, the system is propped up to a large extent by the the online advertising um, networks and they are in turn propped up by the platforms that are entirely supported by them. So the platforms could make a little bit more money (laughs) by um, making a little bit less ad revenue by having slightly less effective ads but that were not based on such extensive data harvesting. And I think regulators in Europe at least are cottoning on to that and there is an increasing push in this direction for Data minimization. So absolutely data minimization doesn't mean no data collection, it just means the minimum amount of data collection needed for specific purposes. So you, I, I think we can have it I think we can have our cake and eat it. Yeah. Uh,
3: yeah, and I think also even in smart city design, it might be possible to advocate for a minimum viable datification of you know urban systems as well. Um, and to think again about which things what are the, which are the kinds of things that are maybe narrow which can be optimized through these sorts of data-based flows, and what are the areas in which we should just have the right to be suboptimal?
0: Right. Well, one we
5: over there. Um, thanks. Richard Knight from Imperial College. Um, so artificial intelligence is leading to some jobs being uh, lost to humans and given to machines, Um, But some tech companies would say that's okay because we can use universal income um, and that would level um, the social cost to some extent. Uh, But I wonder if that legitimizes artificial intelligence taking uh, some jobs that maybe don't need to be taken or maybe optimizing parts of society that don't need optimizing and uh, accelerating us towards that digital dystopia. I was wondering what thoughts you'd have on UBI policy.
2: Um, I suppose I feel, um, well, I think universal basic income would, would, you know, is a really exciting idea, if I'm honest. Um, and I don't know if we should be dissuaded from that idea because we have a sort of degree of skepticism about, you know, whether or not some jobs need to be automated or don't need to be automated. Um, and I think, you know, our current benefit system is completely broken um, and is leaving people literally destitute. So, you know, we're probably heading for some kind of radical change to the way we think about those things anyway, of which automation is possibly only part of the equation. And again, it might, be, it might end up being a moral and ethical question. Um, but I also I guess I wonder, you know, part of the question isn't just about losing jobs it's about you know like you were saying what kind of jobs people now have so people may still be employed (coughs) but i think we need to ask questions you know we were talking earlier about facebook content moderation for example is a job that didn't exist however many years ago and it's a really horrible job so um you know I I think we need to ask ourselves, it's not just about whether or not people have a job or don't have a job, it's about what kind of work will need to be done in this system.
0: Let's just... I was just trying to move on, take some more questions. Uh, Lady over there by the wall.
3: Thank you. Hello, Rachel. Um, I'm a digital project manager. So uh, my question is, um, one common theme that comes from the panel tonight is the negative impact of um, dystopia on the disadvantaged on the, dis- on the disadvantaged, so how do we as professionals and future professionals and academics properly address this, and are we too late oh.
0: yeah. never too late. <laughs>
3: I would agree also with the idea that things are never too late. I think that like other worlds are always possible. Um, And and so if we think about this idea, instead of thinking about the disorders part of this um, festival, we think about the new world part of this festival um, and think about other possible worlds that are already existing. Um, Some of my other work has been focused on how people have reimagined and reappropriated technology. Um, Most recently, I've been a little bit cynical about this. Um, But my cynicism is mostly to do with these kinds of structural problems and systemic problems that I identified. People trying to do things differently with technology often run into the same problems, which have to do with how the social system is constructed. Um, So, for example, I looked at a really interesting project where a community was using um, sort of uh, sensing systems to try to identify um, problems with damp in their community, um, which sounds on the surface like a really great project because you can identify damp and maybe you can have a discussion about how to fix damp houses. But it turned out that the main problem with this Project, which produced a lot of really interesting data that the community was able to like reflect on and talk about together, the main problem was that this um, installation of damp sensors in people's homes was also occurring at the same time as the co- local council had eliminated the position of the damp inspector, who was the, <laughs> the expert who had previously examined houses to determine the extent and, and uh, severity of a damp problem. So, again, there are, like, lots of ways of thinking about how do you equip a community with a technology to have a conversation about something that matters to them without removing the mechanism that puts that conversation into the bigger institutional context. And so I would say thinking about those kinds of issues is important. Yeah.
0: Really good question. i want to take the lady in the middle there that I was trying to take before. Thank
1: you. Um, I think, first of all, um, when we, I go back to what was said earlier on when the book printing happened that took quite a long time to make all the changes and for society to adopt to that and a lot of the people at these times the elites probably weren't very happy with what was happening that a lot of people could not read and so wanted to participate in society so I think the question is really as societies how we deal with that and I think we've been in kind of a data oblivion where it was so exciting in the beginning that we all kind of jumped into it and were really excited, and now we're starting to realize. And what I was wondering, because you talked about what the European Union has done, but Governor Newsom in California has just come out with a very different proposal, which I find interesting because, again, you see different approaches from Europe and um, the U.S., if they're good or bad. Remains to be seen, but it 's interesting that he focuses very much more on the individual and he wants somehow the funds that go currently into the big tech companies to be redistributed because there is no equilibrium in his assessment between what we give and what we get and I was wondering what you're thinking is on that.
4: Yeah, I think what's happening in the US at the moment is fascinating insofar as if you look at it from a, from a data protection perspective, for years I think we would have said that the US and the EU were at totally different ends of the spectrum in terms of how personal data was regulated, with, broadly speaking, the US not regulating the private sector at all. And then um, over the past um, year and a half or so, you saw California take a first step by introducing this really comprehensive, strict data protection law, um, leading to a kind of a panic, I would say, amongst the tech companies who realized that this could happen across various states in the U.S. <coughs> unless federal data, data protection law was um, introduced. So then you see the tech companies lobby in Washington for an all-encompassing federal data protection law to prevent this kind of more strict law emerging across the states. But ultimately, what we will end up, because I guess they're thinking is that it's easier to lobby federal rules than it is at, at state level. So more kind of veto points to, to water it down um, in the legislative process. But ultimately, I think we will end up with federal data protection law in the US, which is which is incredible on this issue of, of taxation. I mean, this is something that also came out in the, in the UK um, in the DCMS report on um, disinformation this week the idea that you would impose a levy or uh, some sort of levy on the big tech firms in order to um well various I- ideas to to increase digital literacy amongst children to, to fund journalism i think everyone's thinking of ways to kind of extract from them and to, to rebalance somehow i guess recognizing that at the moment things are quite unbalanced
0: yeah i you want to ship in if not i'll grab another one
5: uh, right on the, again, to the wall, please. I don't know if you can hear me, but I'll, I'll carry on. Um, uh, Dr. Powell, you, you made a very interesting comment uh, right at the beginning when you said good intentions can lead to uncomfortable consequences. Um, and, I, and I do wonder how good uh, some of the intentions are of uh, some of the people who are working in the tech industry. And, and if we take, for example, um, uh, the scale of regulatory non-compliance in the tech industry, and quite often the glorification of that non-compliance. Um, if we take the Uber um, uh, market expansion model for as an example, the lands of the particular market <clears throat> runs the roughshod uh, across all of the uh, uh, employment legislation in that particular market, um, and then destroys competition and then proceeds to figure out what the laws are in that particular country. And we hear so many startups claim to be the Uber of this and the Uber of that. Um, and so, so I do wonder whether that in itself is you know, heading, leading us more quickly towards that digital dystopia.
0: You mean the actual, do you mean the actual the sort of moral, personal motivations of the company or the business model?
5: Uh, they're both linked. So the yeah. fact that
0: some of the intentions. And also us as users, because I don't know about how people split here, but. I'm sure a lot of people in this room love using Uber. Absolutely. And don't sit there making ethical decisions when they're getting a cheap ride. Yeah.
3: So. Like, the philosopher always gets stuck with the really easy questions, like, <laughs> what is ethics? Why don't we all... Who has ethics and when? Um, but these are really excellent questions, and I think I some of this is, you know, endless, has been endlessly debated for the last 3,000 years, like, what is it to be a good person? How do I know if I am being a good one? Um, what is uh, human flourishing anyway? Um, how should we define it? Um, and we are at a kind of really interesting social moment where, in fact, like many of our innovations that we have built, have provoked these kinds of questions on an everyday basis. And I actually think that this is a really very interesting phenomenon in itself. Uh, so the fact that we are asking about the relationship between people's individual motivations, their willingness and interest um, in doing something good or well, the capacity of our social institutions to sustain whatever feelings people might have about doing things good or well, and, of course, these external pressures to succeed in other ways. Right? I do a project with um, uh, Internet of Things startups And um, even the ones that are self-identified as tech for good um, have a kind of investment framework where they're looking for the next uh, influx of investment money and it's either that or they don't have a job and that feels really like a, like a compelling material constraint on how they are going to act well and behave well in the world. So I don't think these things have easy answers but I'm really happy that the difficult questions come up so often.
0: Yeah. In a way, Sam, um you, you were suggesting that the, the novel is a wonderful way to deal with it, these issues because, in a way, it, it, this is the perennial task of, the, of, of the, the classic idea of a novel, is to deal with that holistic idea, the personal, the social, uh, the external. Um, yeah, I suppose Dickens was dealing with this when he was talking about the Industrial Revolution and Christianity and you know, urbanisation. Um,
2: yeah, and it's, it's a question that's almost baked into the form of the novel itself, because we could go all the way back and talk about the invention of writing, <coughs> which was supposed to be both um, a cure and a poison, mm-hmm. you know, a cure for memory and the thing that would stop us bothering to remember anymore. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's almost sort of there inherently in any act of writing. Um, and I suppose what the, what the question sort of reminds me of as well is this, which I do think the novel is quite well-placed to explore, is the relationship between utopia and mm. dystopia. And, you know, if we're saying, I, I, I can totally believe that some of the people designing some of the things we now have, they really believed in their own dystopia. I, I, like, I'm sure it's very easy to start out and you've got a great idea and you can see how it's going to change the world, and you are thinking in a very utopian way. The problem is that the minute you start believing in your own utopia and feeling that you need to thrust your idea of utopia on other people, you're into very dystopian territory. And I think one of the things that has probably happened is that we've had a period of almost sort of like unchecked dreaming, if you like.
4: Right.
2: And now the reality and the ramifications of some of the things we've kind of dreamt up are are starting to catch up with this. So in that way, yeah, I mean, the, the novel's well-placed to explore the relationship between utopia and dystopia and probably end up coming to a place where they're, they're very similar things, actually.
0: Obviously, I've got to say that social sciences are also ideally placed to, to grapple with these, but um, <laughs> <laughs> humanity too. Should we take one last brilliant question? Has anyone got a really, really good question, though? Put your hands down if you haven't got a, a really, really good really good start yeah they're starting to get worried aren't they yeah yeah you sir in the
6: middle go on you have the look of a brilliant question about you thank you very much well i'm, I'm still sort of feeling the need to tease out an answer to the the headline behind you there what was the uh, headline? if or, or if we're not yeah. heading towards uh, a digital dystopia so if i might i'd like to just first make a, a brief statement and then follow that up with a question for the panel So um, if one was to sort of break down the human mind and view it as a stimulus response machine in the sense that we are sort of exposed to stimuli, and then there's an emotional processing going on, and then we emit a response, right? And and in my mind, this is kind of the kind of data that we're, we're collecting. We're looking for a correlation between a stimulus and a response, right? So... I I really hope that nobody in this building tonight is sort of on Interpol's most wanted list, right? But if you would have been, you probably wouldn't make it far out of here because we have CCTV everywhere, we have facial recognition and everything, right? So it would be very, very easy just using the technology and the data we have to sort of track you down and and, and find you as a person, right? Assuming that you're on the bad list. Now let's assume for a second that not, not, not all sort of democracies or, or, or forms of government that we have are, are benign, right? If we extrapolate this into the future and we, we can see the far left Theory. the far right or, or any kind of you know, ex- extreme fraction gaining the upper hand. So, so, so the point I'm making here is that we have an abundance of data today and, and, and basically we know your response if you are just exposed to certain stimuli. So my question to the panel then would be, what makes you think that the governments or private organizations who are in possession of this data will not use that to sort of provide you with a stimuli that will, according to statistics, yield to them sort of beneficent response, if you will? Yeah. yeah, that's not a bad question, um, a good question. Yeah. i mean it is interesting in in a way, we are
0: going through a phase, aren't we where in a sense the the baddies are kind of catching up you know the, the 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 authoritarian if you like populist governments, perhaps you know some of the um less noble corporations are sort of catching up with the technology um and clearly you know technology is not neutral and can be used. In malign ways. Um, and in a sense, I think one of the problems is we are complicit. I wasn't joking about the Uber thing, but it delivers wonderful benefits to us. And if you look at, for example, somewhere like China, there's huge approval ratings amongst the Chinese population for all those social control mechanisms, etc., apparently. What's the path of resistance, panel?
3: Oh, the path of resistance. Oh, God. See? But first of all, is everyone good? And second of all, what are we going to do? Um, so, uh, I really am thinking about this period of unchecked dreaming. Um, and I want to, re- I want to return to the idea that there is a sort of, there are many, many capacities for technology to do quite a lot of things, but they do not work seamlessly. And I think this is also something that must that we must sort of remember, um, especially these technologies that are primarily built around a kind of promise. Um, it is possible, yes, for um, sort of traces to predict actions before they occur, and Orla can speak more to this. Um, but it is also pro- completely possible for these systems to not operate correctly, to break, to glitch, to be um, based on poor data, and these are places, I think, these are the sorts of fractures and fissures that point out the, um, the, the sort of limits of the dream and the mechanisms of the reality, and these are the places that regulation addresses, these are the places that social norms address, and these are the places where technology also begins to fail, um, and I think that there are good places for us to focus so that we can think about um, what the limits of things are rather than yeah. actually, like, perpetuating the myth that the all-knowing, all-seeing eye will somehow anticipate everything.
4: Ola? Yeah, well, in, in terms of, of that question, because I think the, the, the privacy lawyer is normally kind of the, the paranoid one <laughs> um, on, on any panel, but I, I would say um, here that... The, the trick is, I guess, not to be complacent. So on, on that question of why aren't we uh, you know, worried about this or should we not be worried about this, I think we absolutely should. Um, but in doing so, I guess what we're not perhaps connecting now is that all of the data that is currently held by the private sector, which we quite willingly um, divulge through our day-to-day interactions, could one day easily be in the sector in that Um, The the human rights framework as we have it, for instance, applies to the public sector but doesn't apply directly to the private sector. But those traditional boundaries um, in law, for instance, between public and private are are dissolved through this technology. And that's that's a a very real risk, I think, for for rights and so something that requires constant vigilance. And and also for the the law to keep responding in different ways because, I mean, you were describing the technology there as... um, you know, kind of stimulus response, but we're already seeing, for instance, on Oxford Street, the rollout of um, emotion detection technology. So whereby getting a, 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 a glance of your face, you can tell how somebody is feeling and that, and, and, and then use that feeling in order to offer advertising, for instance, or do something else. And what I think is really example or interesting about that type of example is that it overrides the, the, the principles that underpin the law, which is that we will behave rationally because the technology itself is designed to override our rational responses and to simply play on, play on emotions. And, and so I think the only way to respond is through constant vigilance, which is a bit tiring, but... <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sam, last word here. Um... Firstly, I, I don't have any faith at all that those kind of powers won't be abused by corporations and by governments. I've, I feel that we've already seen that happen. So that's not something we need to kind of project into the future to think about. That's something that's already happening now. And I suppose that's, you know, you say you wanted to come back to the question. I suppose that's why I find the idea of dystopia perhaps... Unhelpful because it implies this kind of looking at the present through a lens of an imagined future. When actually, really, I think it's fair to say that, whatever, you know, whether it's a kind of positive thing or a negative thing, we're in it right now. You know, it's not something we need to extrapolate too far ahead to really think about. You know, we've seen how data perhaps affected Brexit or perhaps affected the election of Trump. We've seen how powerful. Um, targeted advertising can be so we're, we're dealing with it right now I suppose I mean I agree with everything that's been said in, in terms of what we do about that as individuals but I suppose the only thing I would add is I increasingly feel that all of us as individuals have really been given a new kind of power all of us now have a platform and a voice um, that we wouldn't have had access to before And because the vast majority of us aren't actually used to having that kind of power and that kind of responsibility, we're all going to have to develop individual and collective new frameworks of ethics and responsibility in order to shape the world we want to live in. So every single one of us has a responsibility to think about what we share, what we amplify, what data we give people and... Those are going to be questions, we can wrestle with them as a society and we can, we can pressure tech companies and legislate, etc., etc., but whatever we do, we're still going to need a core of individual moral responsibility at the heart of it, or it's just going to keep not working.
0: Challenging. Um, obviously, as we've seen tonight, these issues are hugely complex and sophisticated and shouldn't be reduced to simplistic uh, notions. But I'm going to do that. How <laughs> Hands up, those of you who, after this wonderful hour of discussion, think think more that we are heading to a digital dystopia. Hands up if you become more pessimistic. Hands up if, like me, you just think it's just a moral panic, and we'll all get over it in a few weeks' time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I lose. Thank you very much, Orla. Thank you very much, Alison. Thank you very much, Sam.